We are glad you're here this morning with us again. We're continuing uh, one, more, one more story in the book of Esther. So if you have your Bible, I'm going to be reading from two chapters, or you can just look at the screens to your left and right. I'm going to be reading from Esther chapter 3, verses 1 through 6, and Esther chapter 6, verses 1 through 10. Esther chapter 3, starting from verse 1. After these events, King Xerxes honored Haman, son of Hamadatha, the Agagite, elevating him and giving him a seat of honor higher than all the other nobles. All the royal officials at the king's gate knelt down and paid honor to Haman, for the king had commanded this concerning him. But Mordecai would not kneel down or pay him honor. Then the royal officials at the king's gate asked Mordecai, Why do you disobey the king's command? Day after day they spoke to him, but he refused to comply. Therefore, they told Haman about, about it to see whether Mordecai's behavior would be tolerated, for he had told them he was a Jew. When Haman saw that Mordecai would not kneel down or pay him honor, he was enraged. Yet having learned who Mordecai's people were, he scorned the idea of killing only Mordecai. Instead, Haman looked for a way to destroy all Mordecai's people, the Jews, throughout the whole kingdom of Xerxes. Chapter 6. That night, the king could not sleep, so he ordered the book of the Chronicles, the record of his reign, to be brought in and read to him. It was found recorded there that Mordecai had exposed Bithana and Teresh, two of the king's officers who had guarded the doorway, who had conspired to assassinate King Xerxes. What honor and recognition has Mordecai received for this? The king asked. Nothing has been done for him, his attendants answered. The king said, who is in the court? Now Haman had just entered the outer court of the palace to speak to the king about impaling Mordecai on the pole he had set up for him. His attendants answered, Haman is standing in the court. Bring him in, the king ordered. When Haman entered, the king asked him, what should be done for the man the king delights to honor? Now Haman thought to himself, who is there that the king would rather honor than me? So he answered the king, for the man the king delights to honor, have them bring a royal robe the king has worn and a horse the king has ridden, one with a royal crest placed on its head. Then let the robe and the horse be entrusted to one of the king's most noble princes. Let, the, let them robe the, uh, the man the king delights to honor and, le and lead him on the horse through the whole city streets, proclaiming before him, this is what is done for the man the king delights to honor. Go at once, the king commanded Haman. Get the robe and the horse and do just as you have suggested. For Mordecai, the Jew, who sits at the king's gate, do not neglect anything you have recommended. Amen. This is the word of God. What's going on, Renaissance? My name is Jordan. I am one of the pastors here. Uh, we have some really, really, really exciting stuff on the horizon here at Renaissance. Uh, but when I think about all the exciting things that are happening now, uh, my mind automatically goes back to a time when uh, things were not so exciting. It was about three years ago. Um, I had just left my job, and I convinced my wife to do two things. One, to marry me, which is a miracle, and two, um, I convinced her to move from D.C. to New York because we were going to start this church. And it didn't start with a million people. It didn't start with anything. The only thing we had was this dream, this vision that we would see uh, people formed in Harlem to be one body, to be a church. And we would bring people across color lines and socioeconomic lines, and people would become family. 
We started with a small group in my apartment, about 10 or 12 people, many of whom are in this room right now. Um, and that one small group grew to two small groups, and those two small groups grew. And I remember the first day we prayed for the people who were starting the second one. We laid our hands on them, and we prayed them off, and we sent them out. And then things progressed, and things multiplied, all with this vision that we would become a people that you didn't need a PhD in theology to be part of our church. Uh, you didn't have to be uh, polished. You didn't have to have made all the right decisions. You can come in from wherever you were, and you could find family here. Now, September 2014, we launched our service. And when I look back on the last two years, we're going to celebrate our two-year anniversary in a couple of weeks. Of all the things that God has done, uh, I, I see how people have gone through life together, uh, births and deaths, marriages and divorces. Uh, people have gone to weddings and funerals, uh, and we've done it all together as a family. And, and when I look at what God has done, uh, it, it brings me to tears sometimes, just thinking how God has brought us here. Now, each step of the way, God has always called us to the next step of obedience. Uh, we never jumped and did like, some crazy stuff in a week. Uh, it was incremental growth, but along the way, whenever God's hands are in something, growth is a very, very natural outcome. So I am extremely excited to be announcing to you that on September 18th, we will be launching a second service here at Renaissance. Yes. Very exciting times. Now, just give you some, let me give you some logistics really quickly. Uh, September 18th is a day. Don't come next week um, early for our service because we won't be here. Uh, the services are going to be at 10 and 11.30. Now, both services last about an hour and 10 minutes. So no matter which service you come to, you'll still be able to watch the NFL and you'll be able to watch the Jets lose in peace. But the big question is a couple of things. One, logistics. Uh, the service is going to be the exact same. Um, it's going to be the same cheesy jokes that I tell, um, no matter which one you come to, and the same worship set. Uh, and, the, and the biggest reason that we're doing this is this. Our vision for Harlem is not to just put a bunch of people in a room together. Our vision for Harlem is for men and women to come into contact with the gospel of Jesus Christ and also to partake in this amazing family of people called Renaissance. We ain't perfect by no stretch of the imagination, but we're family. Now, I just spent a week with my uh, family in Virginia and Ocean City, Maryland, and for certain, I can say that my family is most certainly not perfect, but we're family. And we want to invite more people to become a part of our family so they can hear the gospel, so their lives can be impacted by Jesus. And the only way we're going to be able to do that is if we make room. Now, secondly, we have amazing, amazing volunteers. Uh, our volunteers here are called crew, and our volunteers here are, give it up for the crew. Our volunteers are absolutely incredible, um, but one of the things that our kids' volunteers have to do, like Jarrell and Kristen, uh, they don't get a chance to be in church the week that they serve. So if you're traveling a couple of weeks, and uh, you got sick one week, and another week you have uh, to serving kids, you might never be able to sit in a worship service. And one of the reasons we want to go to two services is so that no volunteer will ever have to miss a service ever again. Now, especially if you've had a long week, yes, that's a reason enough itself. If your heart is heavy, you've had a long week, and you really want to be a part of the worship service, you never have to miss a service again. You can serve one, worship one. 
You can serve in one and worship one, and this is what two services will allow us to do. It will allow all of our volunteers, all of our crew to continue to be shaped by the gospel, to continue to be able to worship together as a family, but they'll be able to serve and, and serve one and then worship one. So where does this leave you? A lot of you guys are brand new to Renaissance, uh, and if you're still kicking our tires, that's totally cool, still kick them. Uh, but if you've been around for a little bit, this is what we need. We need to be unified in two things, in prayer, and we also need to be unified in action. And we need everybody, 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 everybody to jump in. Now, if right today, right after um, worship service, our kids team, our kids crew is going to be having a luncheon. I don't know what the menu is, but I think it's going gonna, it's gonna to be delicious. Is it chicken and waffles? Is that what it is? We'll just say that's what it is. Uh, chicken and waffles. Um, and if you are a part of the kids' crew, we want you to go and celebrate and be celebrated. But if you've never uh, gone to anything, we still want you to go today and say, hey, you know what? I would serve. Uh, I would serve once a month with our kids' department. And we're super close to getting our volunteers right there and ready. Uh, and, man, we have so much amazing things happening. But for everybody... Everybody, 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 we want you to be a part. So right after service, our crew coordinator, Hema Valle, donde esta Hema? Here we go, she's in the back. She will be at the info desk, and she has a ton of extra connection cards. She would love to talk to you about which, um, um, which crew you would be good for, and she would love to plug you in. And again, we would have that happening. But before we get into any of this other stuff, uh, I want you guys to pray with me. Uh, any change that happens is always a change, and it comes with its own baggage. So I just want us to pray that the Lord would just guide us through seamlessly as we continue to see the gospel explode through Harlem. So let me, let me pray for us real quickly. Uh, Heavenly Father, I uh, thank you that you are um, working, that you are present. And Father, we want to be where you are. Uh, we want to be where your hand is moving, and we know that your hand is moving here in this place, and we're honored, and you do so many things, oftentimes in spite of us. God, would you move us to action? Would you unify us? Uh, would you give us courage and boldness to do things that you have called us to do? Would you open up more doors? God, would you blow the doors off of our imagination in ways that we could never think or imagine? In Jesus' name we pray, amen. All right. Yes, give it up for the two services, September 18th. That also happens to be our two-year anniversary. We'll be having cupcakes, and I don't know what we're going to have. I'm just making stuff up now, but we're going to be celebrating in, in some way. All right, so we've been in a series called Stories You Should Know, uh, and two weeks ago, we looked at the story of a woman named Esther, and it's an amazing story, so great that we couldn't get all of the juice out of that story the first week. We're going to come back to it today, and we're going to look at uh, Esther again. Uh, Esther is a book in the Bible in the Old Testament, about a woman named Shawana, what's her name? Esther, there we go. She's an A student, ladies and gentlemen. And Esther is a story that's pretty unique in the Bible. It's actually the only book in the Bible that doesn't mention the name of God. Like nowhere in the Bible does it mention it. And Esther's a really good reminder that God is always working in spite of appearances, right? God is always working in spite of appearances. And Esther is the protagonist of the story. It's a, it's a great story, you should read it. It's not that long. Uh, but there's also an antagonist, a villain in this story, a dude named Haman. And Haman is one of the best examples that we see in all of Scripture about what pride looks like in life. Pride, something that I have a PhD in. I am a, an Olympic-level uh, person with pride um, and something that touches all of our doors in some ways that we know of in some ways that we don't know of. And we're going to look at the story of Haman to see the anatomy of pride and to get a good look at what it does in our life. 
Now, I'll just come right now. Listen, there's no sermon I can ever preach that will do pride justice because I am a terribly prideful person. Uh, so much so in my own life, I feel the need almost every time I'm telling a story to exaggerate because I want people to be blown away by how good the story is. But my wife, she, I call her the well-actually police. Well-actually. Like, it doesn't matter where I am telling a story. It's like she has a homing device that she will somehow make her way over to me, lean over my shoulder and say, well, actually, it didn't go like that. So I was like, yeah, I was doing like 200 push-ups. Well, well, actually, it was like nine. All right, 99, but still, I was killing them. And... But even in that, I see my need to always want to uh, exaggerate stories so that people will be blown away uh, by how great of the thing that I just did. And that's just one uh, of many areas uh, that my pride shows up. But let, let me ask you like this. Um, what does pride manifest itself like in your life? What does pride manifest itself like in your life? And if you are drawing blanks, go home and ask one of your close friends. They'll tell you like in three seconds. They'll have a whole list of things that they can fill you in on. And this is what pride does to us. Um, pride keeps us from celebrating other people's success. That, that woman from your job that you really don't like that much, right? And she got a raise, oh, I'm happy for you. I really am. Pride keeps us from saying we're sorry even though we know we're dead wrong. Pride keeps us from, pride keeps us arguing even when we know our point doesn't make any sense. Like you'll keep on going for a half an hour arguing a point that you know good and well in the back of your mind you're wrong, but pride will keep you arguing. Pride will keep you from admitting your weaknesses. Pride will keep you from admitting that you need help. Pride makes people want to cheat before they'll lose. Pride makes us lie about our past, uh, to cover over, to gloss over details about our failed marriages, our failed relationships, or our, our failures in life, to want to gloss over different details. Pride makes us want the final word. Pride makes us buy things with money we don't have to impress people we don't care about with things we don't need. Pride has so many things the Bible talks about. One of the things that Scripture says is, it says that pride is our worst enemy. It's not somebody outside of you. It's not your coworker. It's not your boss. It's not a classmate. It's not somebody in a relationship. It's not their fault. Pride, Scripture says, is our worst enemy. Here's what it says in Psalm 10 and 4. It says, in his pride, the wicked man does not seek him. In all his thoughts, there is no room for God. In all of your thoughts, there is no room for God. And here's what pride means. Uh, the Greek word for it is phusio, which means puffed up. So think about it like a balloon that is blown up to the max. And here's what scripture says about pride. It's not that you're too busy to pray. It's just that your pride has puffed you up so much, there is no room for God. It's not that you don't have any time for anybody else. It's that your pride has puffed you up so much, there's no room for them. So let's look at the story in Esther, and by the grace of God, pray that God, through the Holy Spirit, will work on our hearts to free us from the grip of pride. So in Esther, the, the scripture that Lester just read, it says this about Haman in verse 1 in chapter 3. It says, after these events, King Xerxes honored Haman, son of Hamadetha. So all of expectant mothers, if you're looking for names, Hamadetha. Here we go. You're welcome. The Agagite, elevating him and giving him a seat of honor higher than all of the other nobles. Now, so Haman gets the, the seat, the, this position of power higher than anybody else. And verse 2 tells us something pretty interesting. 
Verse 2 in Esther 3 tells us that the king had to make the command for everybody to bow to Haman. Now, this is really interesting because in ancient cultures, bowing was instinctual. And anytime you saw somebody of that much power come in a room, you would just bow. It's not like in America today where we would do that. Uh, it, it was extremely um, normal to bow for everybody. And if the king had to make a command, then this guy Haman must have been a jerk. Like he must have been so obnoxious that nobody even wanted to bow to him. So the king, even though he's a second in command, uh, mandated and forced everybody uh, to bow to him. But there's this one dude who says, nah, I'm not, I'm not putting no respect on his name. I don't respect this dude. This guy Mordecai refuses to bow to him. And here's all the things that Haman has. And here's what pride does to you. Pride forces you to look at the stuff that you don't have. Haman has thousands of people, hundreds of thousands of people that would bow to him at any given moment. But there's one guy that won't bow to him. And it enrages him so much, so much so that he devises a plan. And he devised a plan that he was going to have Mordecai killed. And not just Mordecai, but he was going to have uh, all of Mordecai's people, all of the Jews, killed alongside of him. Pride, according to the Bible, isn't just being arrogant. Um, it includes that, but it's bigger than that. This is how C.S. Lewis um, describes pride. He says, pride is the ruthless, sleepless concentration upon self. Pride is the ruthless, sleepless concentration upon self. Now, being a pastor, I get to talk to so many people. Couples come in for counseling, and one of the biggest reasons, if not the biggest reason that kills every single relationship is that people are just concentrating on themselves. Now, if you ask most people, hey, what do you love about the other person? Here's what most people will tell you. All of the things that make them happy. Well, I like him. Yo, he does this for me. He does this for me. That's not love. You, lo you don't love them. You love yourself. Take any two people in a marriage and let them concentrate on themselves and you have a recipe for disaster. You put two people, if you put two people that concentrate on the we before the me, you have a recipe for success, of service, of submission to each other. Any of these things would far surpass people concentrating on themselves. And this is what gets in our way in our relationships, concentrating on what makes me happy in friendships. Concentrating on only doing what, what I want to do because I am the smartest person and everything that has to happen has to happen my way. And if it's not my way, I'm not going to do it. Pride is a ruthless, sleepless concentration upon self. And here's one of the craziest things about pride. Uh, it's really, really, really easy to see in somebody else, but it's really hard to see in yourself. It's extremely easy to see in somebody else, but when it comes to you, it's uh, almost impossible to see it. Pride turns everything into a means to an end, that we never do anything for itself. We're always using it as a means to get more respect or get approval. And that's why Haman, uh, he got no satisfaction from all of his accomplishments. He was so consumed with the notion of what he wasn't getting uh, that he was turning everything into something about being himself. Now, there's two different types of pride. There's a superiority type of pride. Now, superiority basically is something that we've come to know about pride, right? I think that I'm better than you. I'm prideful. That's not a, a, a stretch. Um, but there's also an inferiority type of pride where you're thinking about yourself all day long. You're comparing yourself all day long. The only difference is you just haven't stacked up as well as you would if you were feeling superior. It's two sides of the same coin. You're still ruthlessly, sleeplessly concentrating on yourself. All day long, you're still thinking about how you stack up, how you add up. And this right here, this, is, this right here is what the Bible calls pride, concentrating on yourself. And when you do this so much 
The Bible says in Psalm 10 and 4 that if we leave no room, there is no room for God. Tim Keller says it like this, according to the Bible, humility is not thinking less of yourself, it's thinking of yourself less. It's not thinking less of yourself. It's not thinking that you're a bad cook if you're really a good cook. It's just not always maniacally worrying about how everybody sees you, how everybody views you and interprets everything that you're doing. And the Bible says that pride kills. All throughout the scripture, uh, we see it in verse 5 and 6. It says, when Haman saw that Mordecai would not kneel down or pay him honor, he was enraged. Yet having learned who Mordecai's people were, he scorned the idea of killing only Mordecai Instead, Haman looked for a way to destroy all of Mordecai's people, the Jews, throughout the whole kingdom of Xerxes. So Haman has this plan. He sets up a pole that's 75 feet high, and uh, on it, he wants to hang Mordecai. And here's what's so interesting about that. He wasn't content to just kill Mordecai. He wanted everybody to know that Mordecai disrespected him. And here's what pride does to us. It's not that you're content with just getting a situation. You want everybody to know. You want everybody to be able to see. You want everybody to be able to witness uh, your power and what will happen to somebody who crosses you. And if you cross me, then something's going to come for you. This is why you'll see on Facebook people blasting people out or or, or on Twitter going crazy on people. We want everybody. This is what fuels our shame culture in general. We want everybody to know how terrible this person is who had the nerve to offend us. So Haman sets up this plan, and he wants to uh, hang Mordecai on it, and he wants him to pay a public price for it. Now, that's not God's vision for our lives. That's pride. In Esther 7, uh, we, Lester didn't read this part of the of story. Esther 7, uh, the queen of Persia, Esther comes along the scene, and she finally identifies to the king that, listen, if we kill all the Jews like your boy Haman wants to do, then we're going to kill me too because I myself am a Jew. And they have a banquet, and Haman realizes that he's in a whole lot of trouble, and he's begging Esther for forgiveness. And this is what happens. The same pole that Haman set up to kill Mordecai, Haman himself is hung on. The same pole, the same thing that he set up to to kill Mordecai is the same exact pole that he himself is killed on. Pride tells us in Psalm, I'm sorry, Proverbs 16 and 18, Pride goes before destruction, a haughty spirit before a fall. Pride always leads to destruction. Your pride will always lead to destruction of your marriages, of your relationships, of your job, of your work life, of your friendship, of your walk with God. Pride only leads to one place. Uh, Years ago when I was in college, it's a crazy story, um, and this one is true. I'm not even exaggerating this one. Uh, one of my really good friends, he was one of the only Christian guys that I knew in college. His name was Jay. And um, his roommate had pornographic pictures of women all over the wall. Like on every, like not just in one spot of the room, but like all over the entire wall. And my, and my friend Jay was like, listen, man, hey, can you take those pictures down? Like it's really tripping me up, man. I'm trying to live right. Um, and these pictures are really, really bothering me. The guy pokes out his chest and says, man, I ain't, I'm not taking anything down. If you're such a good Christian, you can deal with it. I'm not exaggerating this. This next day, um, his roommate gives me a call, and he's freaking out. He's terribly nervous. He says, yo, can I come to your room? I was like, yeah, yeah, come on up. He comes to my room, and he got into a little fight with some guys I was on the basketball team with, these guys from Philly. And one guy that he got into a fight with, this dude, like, his hands were good. 
Like this dude, he, like, he got into a fight like every weekend and he was undefeated. <laughs> so he got into it with him. He comes to my room, he says, Jordan, can you please call June and, and piece it up for me and squash it, please do anything. This is the next day after this, I say, you know what? Once Justin calls me and tells me that the posters are down, I'll call him. He was on a path for destruction. He, started, he was so puffed up, he started thinking that he was big and bad, and he got humbled. And all throughout scripture, the Bible is very clear. Whoever exalts himself will be humbled. Whoever humbles himself will be exalted. This is all throughout scripture. Our pride will always lead to destruction. At your job, pride will keep you from admitting that you need help. You're going to do poorly on your job because you're not going to admit that you don't understand what the boss is asking you to do. Uh, my wife's friend came up to New York a couple years ago, and he's, you know, he was in really good shape. And he was like, hey, do you want to go to the gym? I'm like, yeah, I want to go to the gym. That's what I do. I go to the gym. <laughs> so he's like, we got to the gym. He said, what exercises do you want to do? I said, yeah, whatever you're going to do, I'm going to do it. <laughs> he was in a lot better shape than I was, in a lot better shape than I thought he was in. Uh, that dude had my head spinning in that gym. I was walking around. <laughs> I was making up excuses like, oh, my mother called me. I'll be right back. I got to be. And it almost led to my destruction. I, was, I came back home and like laid down in my dirty clothes and couldn't get up for a while. The room was spinning. And that pride of me just saying, listen, I can't do that. Like that exercise you just did? No, I can't do that. But it was pride that was going to lead and was leading to my destruction. Hey, over and over and over again, um, so many things. Uh, it's our pride that keeps us from admitting that we're wrong. So many relationships are destroyed. There are family members that haven't talked to each other in decades because of one small thing that somebody did, and you refuse to, to, to call them, to text them, and say it's all good. You refuse to accept them because it's not because of anything else. It's because of our pride. Pride leads to the destruction of families, of careers. It always, always, always leads to that one place, destruction. Pride also makes us worry. You want to know why pride makes us worry? Because we have figured out the best way for everything to happen. We have figured out the absolute best way for God to work. And if God is not doing it this way, we worry that it's not going to go exactly as we have planned it to go. And we're worrying, will, will our plans come out to pass? Will the thing that I think should happen, will it happen in a way that I think it should? And we worry over and over and over again because we think that we know it all. We're know-it-alls. We figured it out, and we worry when things don't line up exactly the way that we want to. And this is the type of inferiority type of pride where we're feeling terrible about our lives, but it's only because we have such an elevated view. We're so puffed up that we think we know how everything should go. And pride is also the sin that hides itself now, here's a, a great test. Usually, as soon as you start a message on pride, the first thing people do is think like, yo, I wish Keisha was here. If Keisha, yo, she definitely need to hear this joint. You start thinking about like you, 10 people that you know need to hear this, and you yourself are not listening to the words. They're not hitting your heart. You're thinking about, I'm, a, yeah, I'm, a, I'm tweeting this joint. As soon as I get back, as soon as I get phone service, I'm tweeting this joint. They need to hear this. Hey, Pride is a sin like carbon monoxide. It chokes us without us even knowing that it's around. It chokes us. It chokes the life out of our situations without us even knowing it's around. Now, I only know um, pride is one of those things that doesn't go away. Uh, you're never going to be cured of pride. You're never going to be 
um, bulletproof, that pride can never touch your door. It's always going to be something that we all have to navigate on a daily basis, sometimes on a minute-by-minute -minute basis. Uh, but there's two ways that I know how to live uh, victoriously uh, from pride, and this is a struggle for me as much as I'm sure it's a struggle for you. The first is confession. Confession, confession, confession. Confess to the person that you're struggling with. Uh, listen, pride is the one thing that will keep you from admitting that you're prideful. And just simply blurt it out. Force yourself to say it. Write it down. Text it. Just tweet it. Whatever. Admit, admit it to your community group members, to your family, to your people that you're in a relationship with. Simply just coming out and saying, you know what? The reason that that bothered me is because I'm prideful. It's not that, it's not, the situation would not have bothered me as much if I was not that proud. That proud. Uh, when the scripture talks about pride being uh, puffed up, think about it like this. Um, if I had two balloons, I was going to do it, but the pop, popping noise is really loud. If I had one balloon that was really, really, really blown up, really tense, uh, it wouldn't take a lot to pop that balloon. All you got to do is a simple poke with a pen, and it will pop. But if you have a balloon that barely has any air in it, you got to stab that joint to try to puncture it. And here's the thing, so many arguments start, so many explosions start, because not because of what they said, but because we were so puffed up that it didn't take much to set us off. It didn't take much, all it took was a little prick, and we were off. But confessing it, confessing our pride, confessing it to God and confessing it to other people is one of the best ways I know to just uh, to start the process of recovering from it. But secondly, we find uh, the, the remedy for pride in the gospel. At the beginning of chapter 6, Haman is coming in to see the king. Um, and later in verse 4 of chapter 6, it says, Haman um, wants to kill Mordecai and Mordecai's entire community. He wants to make a public spectacle of him. But God has a different idea. Uh, God um, gives uh, the king a vision that night, a dream in his sleep. And the king remembers that Mordecai was a dude who actually saved my life from these other guys. And he calls in Haman and says, Haman, hey, what should be done for the dude I want to honor? And Haman is like, yo, this is what you should do. You should get the robes. You should have a servant walk by him, right? And so that everybody knows how great this dude is. Haman, and then the king says, great. Bring Mordecai in here and you do that for him. Now, uh, it's a really interesting thing of why the king, uh, they're talking about robes here. Because robes, in every way, was uh, a position of honor. Basically, when he put the robe on him, he was basically saying, this is like my ultimate seal of approval, my ultimate seal of affirmation is that I'm putting my robe on you, that I love you, that you should be king instead of me, that you should be treated like royalty. And above all, Haman wanted that. And here's why. And here's what we all, why we all struggle with pride. Deep down inside, we don't feel significant on our own. Deep down inside, we don't feel that we have the approval of, of God or anybody. So we need to be right, because if we're right, then we'll gain the approval. We need to have our way because if we get our way, then we'll, get, uh, then we'll feel significant that people listen to us. And deep down inside, all of us fear being forgotten. We all fear uh, not being significant. And this is why Haman wanted those robes. This is why it bothered Haman so much that out of the thousands of people bowing to him, one person wouldn't bow to him because he was so puffed up and so fearful that he wasn't significant. And he needed everybody in concert always affirming him. And it wasn't because of them, it was because of him. Now, um, as all throughout scripture, you see when kings put people on robes, in robes, it was the ultimate sign of approval. And here's why. 
It says, uh, this one author, J.R. Tolkien, wrote, The praise of the praiseworthy is above all rewards. The praise of the praiseworthy is above all rewards. And think about it like this. It's one thing if your mother says that the food that you made is good, right? It's another thing if an award-winning chef comes in and she tells you, hey, that food is really good. Because the praise of the praiseworthy is above all rewards. It's one thing if your uncle thinks that you have a good jump shot. It's another thing if uh, an NBA legendary coach like Phil Jackson comes in and says, wow, you can really play basketball, Wendell, but you can't shoot, though. It's another thing altogether because the praise of the praiseworthy is above all rewards. And here's what Heyman missed, and this is what we miss so often. Who is the praiseworthy person that we're looking for in life to, to make us feel significant? What is it that you and I uh, fear when the king of kings lost his robe, lost his righteousness for us? It says it in 2 Corinthians um, that um, Jesus became sin so that you and I could become, could become the righteousness of God. In Philippians 3 and 8, Paul says it like this, What is more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them garbage. Everything else, all the other um, accolades, all of the other achievements, all of the other accomplishments that he had gotten, hey, these are all garbage for, for two reasons. One, as fast as they come, they go. As fast as they come, they go. And secondly, um, they're not dependable at all. He says in verse 9, and be found in him. And here's the part that we love. Not having a righteousness of my own that comes to the law, from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God on a basis of faith. Now, Mordecai was saved only because Haman reversed places with him. But Jesus does it voluntarily for us. Jesus is the ultimate king. He's the king of glory. And he's a king that we can go to because he came at the infinite cost to himself to exchange, listen, to exchange our sin for his righteousness. This is what Paul is talking about. And if you ever have to wonder, does God love you? Does God approve of you? If you base it off of yourself and how good you've done, if you're thinking about it, you're never going to stop evaluating yourself. Because here's why. Think about a day, a minute, an hour where you could not have done better where you could not have done better. This is why we have to rest fully on the finished work of Jesus Christ. Only Jesus, only his blood, only his sacrifice, only his blood matters. Not how great you have done today, not how great you'll do tomorrow, or how poorly you've done tomorrow. And that's why we're always comparing ourselves to everybody else, trying to feel the approval, trying to feel the significance of doing better than somebody else, always measuring ourselves. But here's what Paul is saying. Listen, a truly humble person doesn't even measure themselves because they can rest fully on the work of Christ. Now, this past week, I was thinking about this one scripture. It's been in my head uh, for a long time. It was in our CBR, 1 John 3 and 1. It says, see what great love the Father has lavished on us, that we should be the children of God. Now, I don't know how you view God. If you view God as your professor, that you have to answer all the answers right, or if you view God as someone who lavishes his love on you who lavishes his love and lavishes his affection so much so that he would spare nothing, not even his own son, Jesus Christ, for you and for me. And the only way off of this treadmill of evaluating ourselves day after day after day after day is God making the gospel real in our hearts, that Jesus truly did pay it all. And we can come to him with everything, our successes, our failures, 
Because you and I, if we have placed our faith in Jesus, we are the children of God. And there's nothing you can do about it. Let me pray for us. Uh, Heavenly Father, uh, usually when we talk about something like pride, there's so much introspection that happens, so many ways that we see that we don't measure up. Um, but God, help us to know that we'll never measure up and that the whole point of your son Jesus coming was to satisfy it on our behalf. God, would you make it real to us in our hearts? Would the gospel actually reach down to the furthest part of our heart that would we know that we are accepted and loved and embraced and significant in your eyes, that you wouldn't spare anything, not even your son, for us? God, lavish us with your grace. Let us experience it. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.